Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. I guess one of the things that distinguished this company to me when I first started covering it in like 2013 um, was how I thought it was a real estate company and went down to meet Adam. And he's like, oh, one thing, you're a real estate reporter. You shouldn't be covering us because we're not a real estate company. Um, and that's a great, (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sure you've never been, I've never, I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've had your credentials challenged in different ways. I don't think that's something you were expecting to hear. Um, (laughs) I'll tell you a funny anecdote about Jared Kushner one day. So he, yeah, like they, you know, saw themselves as a tech company, but like, then you actually look at WeWork's numbers and this is sort of fundamental to what commercial real estate is. Like there's only so much money you can get out of an office on on the one hand, in terms of how much are you going to rent it for? Hello, everybody. It's Sagar. Marshall is not able to join me for the introduction today, but we have an excellent episode. It's with the authors of The Cult of We, WeWork, Adam Newman, and The Great Startup Delusion. Now, look, we've done a WeWork episode. Why do we need another one? Well, the reason why is this isn't necessarily about Adam Newman as much as it is about having some Wall Street Journal reporters tell us about how the actual financing of this, you know, basically con and $40 billion company came to be. It's actually a pretty wild story that tells us a lot about the American financial system, and they delve into how things are moving forward since there. SPACs, real estate, whether the economy is still as crazy as it was back in 2019 when all this went down. It goes to how our show's focus is on helping everyone understand the world and what the bigger forces that shape that world look like. Also, make sure you guys check out the Realignment Conference. There are links down there in the description notes. Applications and all of that are still open, and we're looking forward to meeting some of you. Make sure you guys check out The Cult of We on our bookshop, which also the link is down there in the description. And speaking of books, by the way, we got some excellent incoming from all of you about fiction, and we are going to feature the best selections in next episode and on our Substack newsletter, which you can sign up for. For this week, we would like for people to send us nonfiction books by Wednesday so that we can do a roundup. Marshall and I will go through both of those lists. We'll create specific bookshops about realignment, fiction, recommendations from listeners and realignment nonfiction recommendations from listeners. It's an awesome way to see all of you guys get involved. As always, a special shout out to the Lincoln Network for sponsoring this podcast. Let's get to it. Elliot and Maureen, welcome to the realignment. Thanks for having us. So let's just start here. I'm sitting in New York City after a year plus of the pandemic, lockdowns, really terrible remote work setups. Listeners who listened to our early, really poor Yeti mic'd episodes will remember this back in August. And honestly, I love WeWork. It is such a good idea. I went to a WeWork last week and worked to prep for the show, ironically. Well, okay, I did that on purpose. I was trying to set up a narrative there. But it was great. So 
let's just start by talking about that part because a lot of people are seeing the WeWork story and it's 2019, it's 2020, it's this big failure, it's all ridiculous, it's fallen from high $40 billion plus of value to sub $10 billion of value. But I just see it. I'm like, wow, I would invest in this company right now, now that it's at a more reasonable valuation because the underlying idea seems so suited to the moment we're living in. Hybrid work, Corporate offices could create a remote office that fits better. So can you all just talk about WeWork as a company today? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll start. Um, so uh, I think one of the funny things about WeWork is uh, it, it is a rather sort of objectively large company now. They have you know an enormous amount of square footage and desks around the world. And that is this like result of essentially a subsidy that they got uh, a few years ago from SoftBank and all, all these other investors when they thought it was a tech company. And so, yeah, one of the byproducts is that you have you know, 700,000 plus desks now strewn about the world at a time that like it might actually be like a pretty good time to have a lot of desks that you rent monthly or yearly. It, it's sort of a, no one really knows what's going to happen post COVID, right? Like uh, we're, everyone's going back to work. Some people are going back to the office Some people are staying home and everyone has different theories. But uh, one theory is companies are going to be a lot more uncertain or just want things more temporary and, and more nimble. And so they're going to run to uh, something like WeWork. So it's kind of, you know, fortunate for them that they took $12 billion is what they raised over, over time and put it into a company worth $8 billion, but that gives them a lot of desks. Yeah. I guess that's my question, Maureen, is that is the current iteration and strength of WeWork today is that simply a function of the billions of dollars of capital that was pumped into it, which enabled it to build a brand, get a bunch of desks, have all this real estate, ultimately give them, you know, let, I mean, Scott Galloway says this all the time, which is like, you, when you say you're going to get an office, you say you're like, I'm going to get a WeWork. You're not like, I'm going to get Industrious. Although apparently Industrious is a very good company. <laughs> um, and I, I can't forget, for remember, there's a UK-based one, which is worth- IWG. IWG, right. IWG is worth billions of dollars. Good business model, but let's be honest. Nobody knows what the hell IWG is. So is the competitive advantage that WeWork brings to the field, is it its culture, is it its philosophical building, or is it the fact that it became an element of the zeitgeist as a result of all of the billions of dollars that were poured into it over the years? I mean, I think it's a little bit of all of that. I mean, it became part of the zeitgeist. You know the name. Maybe right now, as you're saying, like if you're thinking, oh, I need office space, you'll you'll probably think of it first right. like, all around the world. But the billions of dollars, I mean, there were a lot of co-working spaces at the time of even when uh, Adam Newman, I mean, they predated Adam Newman and WeWork, but there were a lot popping up in New York. Just no one or a few people with IWG as an exception we're going as global. So the fact that it's, I mean, everywhere around the world, these spaces is the result of these billions and billions of dollars that were put into it. Why the spaces are designed. I mean, they look really cool. That's the difference between IWG in particular and WeWork. I mean, there, there is an aesthetic that WeWork has that a lot, that's been mimicked a lot, but I mean, you walk into most of them and they're like very cool looking too. You kind yeah, of want nice. Yeah. Yeah. Something I wonder about, especially when it comes to the aesthetic, is I'm wondering how much of a generational thing this is. So I was I was watching Hulu's WeWork documentary last night to get a little bit of visual perspective on all this. And the number one thing I just noticed is it feels so late stage millennial WeWork, the the hustle porn, 
the hashtag girl bossiness of it almost. There's all these like trends which are now deeply unfashionable, but at the same time made a lot of sense in 2014, even down to the company culture and the partying, the way people were partying. So I'm just curious how much of this is a specific generational reality as you're looking at this company and that aspect of it? Because I, I definitely see I work with a couple of cynical Gen Z people and they do not seem like they are the target market for this specific uh, setup and everything. I have one point of reference is that they, my niece is just graduating from Georgetown and she's, you know, heard my stories, knew I was writing a book, but they took over, Georgetown took over space. So they had the option to use it um, this last year. And she was like, oh my God, I finally went to a WeWork. We were just able to work there and it's awesome. So <laughs> that's all I've got. But she, it seems like it's appealing to that, her and her friends who are, you know, I don't know what generation, what is it, Gen Z, if you're about to- Yeah, she would probably be Gen Z. So she thinks it's cool still. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, TBD, I guess. I, I don't pretend to have any idea what, what uh, post-college grads are thinking in, in, in life. But um, you, I mean, like one of the reasons that WeWork took off was not because it was this totally genius idea, but I think it's like they happened to really just like hit this vein of- uh, cool design mixed with millennials who were like, I don't want sterile, boring offices, sort of the, the revulsion from the, the office space, um, yep. movie, uh, you know, generation of cubicle farms. So like, I, I my guess is that doesn't last forever. Right. That, that's a sort of a, a temporary thing and, and trends change. Yeah. I just don't know. It really collided exactly well with that, like post office generation. And like Marshall was saying this, like, it was very characteristic, I think of the late Obama era. And obviously that's when it was born, whenever we were collapsed, I think I, like a lot of people was just like, I don't understand. I, I just didn't, I was like, I don't get it. Like how does a company be worth $40 billion one day? And then the next day it's not, um, is it worth anything? We know now it is. I think what you guys can help us provide some insight on at this point, everyone's heard the podcast, the documentaries, you know, Adam Newman, he had this magnetism, he was barefoot, and he's like a total weirdo, and all of that. People know that part of the story. But let's think about across the table. Who are these people who are sitting across from Adam Newman and write him checks for billions of dollars? What did they see at that time? Walk us through their thinking as the company, let's say from the beginning up until you know the uh, entree of their big investor, uh, Masayoshi-san, which we will get to. Go ahead. So, so I'll start. Um, and yeah, this was sort of like the central question that that we we took on, and we say this in our our uh, author's note. Like, I mean, this question of like, how did this happen? How was like literally the country's most valuable startup this total mirage? And and you know, how did so many people get fooled? How did they raise the second most amount of money ever for a startup beyond Uber? Um, and you know, the, the answer is that they, we work Adam Newman, this kind of really good salesman collided with this essentially like a whole financial system that, that was thirsting for Silicon Valley innovation and disruption. And sort of, there was just so much money, just suddenly excited about Silicon Valley that it was, um, it, it just created a mini bubble and it was very, you know, e easily skewed to, uh, do silly things. So, I mean, you know, the, the one, the first kind of chunk of money came from venture capitalists who, 
uh, you know, in the old days used to invest more in companies, but, but in the past 15 years, they've become much more obsessed with this meme of the founder and, and like the person who they're investing in. And so like founders fund, which is Peter Thiel's fund, uh, even says on its website that it looks for founders with messianic qualities, uh, near messianic mm-hmm. qualities. And so like a- Adam Newman just kind of like checked all these various boxes of these things that they happen to be looking for of people sort of emulating Mark. Zuckerberg and channeling Steve Jobs and, 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 you know, he talks this huge game of like, I'm going to disrupt everything and take over the world. And it's like, well, you have two locations. Uh, but, but that that's exactly the stuff that these venture capitalists in, in Silicon Valley want to hear because they want to get a hundred times their money. And, and, you know, a bunch of times it doesn't work out, but if it works out once, then you make a lot of money. So yeah, I, I guess that, that was sort of step one. And then like over time, Maureen can talk about this. There were just a bunch of other sort of like keys that turned so and unlocked in the financial system, basically doing the same thing. Yeah, it, it, basically every, I mean, step of the way, the story is sort of like private capital is plentiful and, you know, the supply is so huge of it. And, you know, Adam Newman knew how to make uh, himself and the company seem like a scarce resource. I mean, he just knew how to play investors every step of the way, whether it was the venture firms, the the banks, the mutual funds. And, you know, I guess the, the thing was, I mean, it's like a, you could have been a used car salesman or whatever, but it's like, if you don't get it right now, you're going to miss out. And I mean, he, he took it to the, I mean, whether uh, Goldman at one point was about to invest in his company and he just didn't like the valuation. They were about to run out of money and he just said, no, I don't want it. And he wound up getting, he, I mean, he would, be right. He would get people uh, to come in. There were just so many people waiting at the gates to invest in his company. And, and he knew how to make you scared. If you, mm-hmm. if you didn't get in right then, you're going to miss it. Yeah. I guess one of the, the, the sort of main takeaways we took is, is that we work had a bunch of Theranos. I think people look at that and wonder how it's similar. That had a bunch of unsophisticated investors um, like, you know, Betsy DeVos, <laughs> Rupert Murdoch, um, it, put it, putting money into a, uh, essentially a lie. Uh, we work had a bunch of really smart investors doing dumb things. So, uh, you know, these were not dumb people and some of their choices were even rational, but, you know, we have the example of the mutual funds, which are, are you know, generally pretty boring, right? Um, they, they, they are where we put our retirement savings. Uh, you had these kind of managers there really realizing they needed to get returns and they couldn't get it on the stock market. So they were plunging money into things like WeWork. And one of these guys at Fidelity, uh, smart guy, he, a successful manager, but he was just totally kind of taken in by Adam, who was like, you know, let's have tequila shots. Uh, and then just paints this vision of, of the future. And he gets really excited about it. And then, and we saw this again and again at different levels, when the Fidelity manager went to his subordinates and, and analysts and said, well, we're going to do this. What do you think about it? The analyst, an analyst came back and was like, this is a real estate company and it's really overvalued. And yet Fidelity invested. I mean, he, he the guy paired his, his investment back a little bit, but it was still that they put, gave him like over $200 million um, between a couple managers there. And uh, this is despite subordinates like coming to the obvious conclusion, but the sort of smart people at the top were, were too fixated on sort of other things and fear of missing out. And Fidelity passed, I'm sorry, at, at $5 billion. And this is when they actually went in, it was six months later at $10 billion. Ooh. <laughs> so here's the here's the question because 
the subtitle of the book is, you know, refers to the startup delusion. I want to get into what actually is the delusion here, because if you'll give me a second, Elliot, you identified two different things that are kind of happening here, and you as well, Maureen. One, there's this belief in messianic founders that Adam Newman is this ubermensch who can will a company into being, can start with a green desk thing and a couple crappy companies, but then turn that into a really huge exit for everyone. And then there's this belief, especially at firms like Founders Fund, that focusing on finding those founders is, by the title, kind of what you're kind of supposed to do. So that's one thing. The other thing is this idea of, especially during the 2010s, let's look at these really big markets that if you could identify a tech disruption, quote unquote, you could fundamentally transform them if you're willing to fund these a lot. So yes, Uber, does Uber make money? No, it's not quite profitable. So let's invest a lot of, lot of money so it can basically take over markets and disrupt the taxi industry and get really big. And then someday they'll come up with a effective business model. So what I'm getting at is it seems to me that I can do a speak up real quick for the not so humble Bill, um, founder in the sense that like Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg is one of these founders, right? Mark Zuckerberg, he, I wouldn't say he has the, like, because of a variety of public, uh, lack of charisma issues, he's not doing the messianic, um, Jesus thing to quote Scott Galloway. But at the same time, he is very aggressive. The company is very centered around him, but he really makes it work because the model of a software company is different than the model of subsidizing something like Uber. So can we just get to what the actual delusion is? Is the delusion founders fund believing in founders, or is it this belief that narratives can supply massive valuations and massive amounts of funding without the unit economics getting figured out? Um, I don't know if you love this, but it's sort of both. I mean, you know, they're the same thing where you're just believing something is much more big and common than it is. So in the same way that you believe that just because there's Jeff Bezos, Steve Jobs and uh, Mark Zuckerberg, that they're, you know, basically everyone you meet is likely to be that. Uh, that's, that's, you know, just not likely. I mean, now you have a lot more founders with founder control who run their whole companies, despite having a minority stake all because essentially the, the money is saying, well, you're probably messianic and visionary. Um, so I mean, that, that's one bucket, but then, yeah, like, I think that the, the subtitle probably refers more to, and, and, um, certainly something we spent a fair amount of time looking at was, uh, just this craziness, especially in the mid 2010s, where, Everything was a tech company, no matter how obviously it was not a tech company um, mm -hmm. and raising money at a tech valuation. And then everything was going to be bigger th than you thought. So like it was never enough. So with Uber, right, like Uber makes this really amazing app that completely disrupts like the way we get around cities. <laughs> that, that wasn't nearly enough. Right. Like they had to say, like, oh, well, we're going to make our own self-driving cars. We're going to get into flying cars. We're going to disrupt walking with scooters. Right. Like we have to be the Amazon of transportation because apparently it's not big enough to completely disrupt the way people get around it by in a car. And so that's why Uber raised so much money. And actually, like the vast majority of the money that Uber raised has performed terribly. Uh, it's it's like literally flat since five years ago. Uh, and the NASDAQ has tripled. Um, so, you know, that the same thing that was going on with sorry, Uber, what where do you, it's... What do you, sorry, what do, you mean, what do you mean by that? The, the flat and the NASDAQ has tripled? Can oh, you just explain so, that? Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, so 
in 2015 and 2016, Uber raised like four or five billion dollars at, uh, you know, the share price was was is still corresponds to its publicly traded share price today. And so the share price is, I think, literally exactly the same. It's forty eight dollars a share. Uh, and if you you know, that's fine. It's like, well, you didn't lose money. But in the same five year period that that's happened, the Nasdaq has tripled. Uh, so really, uh, if you were moving your money where just putting it in the stock market, you would have done a lot better than funding a overvalued ride hail company that was at the time considered the Amazon of transportation. Um, so my point is with that is like there were just a zillion that that created this whole ecosystem of these other essentially fake companies where uh, you would have there were three valet parking companies that would be the Uber for valet parking that just hemorrhaged money as as you know they took your car and you gave them like five dollars and you know they probably spent twenty dollars. I, I mean there were a zillion things. There was the Uber for cookies. Uh, <laughs> there were a lot of Uber for everything, and we were. <laughs> no one nurse. Book about Uber I remember for cookies. Uber nurse. Dobies I R P R I P. Yeah. Because Sagar and I get in this fight all the time, and I think this fight is over Sagar being a little more of a pessimist and me being more of an optimist. What do, and I want to throw this to both of you, Maureen, first. What does fake mean? Because I think this is where people get the most reactionary about whether they think a thing is fake or not. So, for example, Amazon, for a large part of its early existence – by many definitions as a quote unquote fake company in the sense that it's not, it's, it's not profitable. It's not performing quite where it wants to perform. And now 20 years later, obviously it's freaking Amazon. Right. And there's, and there's no debate here. Media credentials aside about whether or not you'd put money into um, Amazon for when it first, um, you know, starts up in the 1990s. So when does a company, when, when does the process of venture capital, AKA putting money into something that could 10 X to hundred X, when does that transform from propping something up to turning into something real. Um, because I want to, because I'm trying to understand the distinction between fake and just what venture capital is by definition. It's a great question. And I'm, I'm sure you'll never guess which one of the two of us is the optimist and who's the pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to, hard to figure it out. Um, but basically, I mean, what you're explaining is essentially venture capital. I mean, there's like a there's a period of time where, yeah, money is lost. You don't quite know what this is going to be. And then, you know, this company kind of explodes. And um, I mean, Uber and and WeWork did take over the world. There's just, yeah, to the fake question, it's, I mean, they can't, will they ever make profits like Amazon has or Facebook? I mean, even I remember right after their IPO, it was like, gosh, this company is such a disaster. And we could have a whole nother argument in terms of what it's done for democracy and everything, but for shareholders, I mean, it's been a, it's been a winning bet. So I, I think that it's just, it is this sort of uh, like the existential venture capital question of when, when it transforms and it's kind of like, you know, when you see it and yeah, there, yeah. there is this, yeah, the suspension of disbelief for a long time. That's what venture capitalists are in the business of like these industries you don't, that haven't been created before. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. think you're, I think you're on to something there. It it really is like a it's like a judicial you know when you see it standard like Amazon. Yeah, it's like a money printing machine. They need money in order to expand more products, buy more warehouse, but the fundamental product is sound. Um, and I think that, and also I think Bezos did a very good job of not like chasing crazy valuations and keeping it on a generally steady foot. Whereas Newman, it seemed, I mean, let's talk about this, which is that. Did he really believe 
that this company was going to be not just a unicorn, but like a $100 billion real estate company, which was going to take over. We live, we're going to change the way people live, we're going to change the way people go to school, and all of this. At the same time, as I understand it, his personal financial decisions in terms of cashing out hundreds of millions of dollars in the middle of deals is extraordinarily um, uh, is, is, is extraordinarily different from how most people who are founders who actually believe in their companies would act. As in, if you think you're if you really think you're going to the moon, you're 100 billion. Why would you cash out at a 10 billion dollar valuation? And that's why, even though he got kicked out on his ass, today he's worth like $700 million, $750 million. Um, what do you think, Elliot? I mean, <laughs> like, if you can break down the psychology of Newman. That one's hard. <laughs> In um, 30 yeah. seconds flat. Yeah. yeah, just figure that out. <laughs> I mean, what, what you hear a lot from people around Adam is Adam had this totally amazing way of uh, justifying absolutely everything he did as right and and believing everything he did. So I think he drank his own Kool-Aid and really, like, I really do think he, he thought he was going to build a multi-trillion dollar company that was going to be the world's largest. And you know, by 2018, like we really get into this in the book, like he was really kind of losing grip with reality and saw himself on par with heads of state and thought he was going to live forever. And, uh, you know, was snubbing, like nearly snubbed Theresa May, uh, for an event. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, so, so I think he, he believed that, but yes, it is, uh, funny how it works out that he did make something, what turned out to be incredibly rational financial decisions to take out hundreds of millions of dollars. So, so I, you know, he wasn't an idiot. Then again, he did, you know, toward the end, borrow money uh, again in a sort of advantageous way to him, but um, and also for tax reasons. Um, but uh, you know, he did. He, he he had a huge stake in WeWork. So like, he was hoping, thinking he'd going to be a he was going to be a trillionaire. I mean, here's the. I want to throw this question to you too, Elliot, because you covered real estate. If we're actually once again, I'm putting on my optimist hat here. I could just imagine, especially maybe I'm infected by the post knock on wood post COVID thing. There's this massive market, which is just totally screwed right now. If you're in commercial, I would not want to be, I mean, obviously it'd be cool to be in commercial real estate, but I wouldn't actually want to be in commercial real estate. If I could pick my various industries that you could just hold a lot of value in after COVID it's really been disrupted. You have these old models that aren't effective or people who don't want to go in. There's hybrid, there's remote. There's obviously a great business for WeWork in planning company offsite retreats. There's all these different, very easy, reasonable derivatives that you could see WeWork putting together now. So just explain for us how the commercial real estate industry really looked. Because something you said earlier is that you were pushing back against the idea that this is a tech company. And obviously like WeWork they do real estate, there's unit economics is your point. This basically comes down to how many desks can they rent out at a price that causes them to make a profit. That's what everything came down to. A lot of things were distractions. But, you know, if we're looking at a, you know, look at a company like Disney. Is Disney a tech company? Well, they have Disney Plus, which is now like this massive streaming service. So tech, when everything kind of becomes digital and tech in some respect, the distinction becomes complicated. And that obviously helps Adam really pump up his valuation. But it would be just great for you to start with talking about the nature of like commercial real estate. And then Maureen, I think what I'd throw to you then afterwards is just talk about how the narrative of like what is and what isn't tech plays into IPOs and valuations, all those technical things. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, commercial real estate and sort of like we were, I guess one of the things that distinguished this company to me when I first started covering it in like 2013 um, was how I thought it was a real estate company and went down to meet Adam. And he's like, oh, one thing, you're a real estate reporter. You shouldn't be covering us because we're not a real estate company. Um, and that's a great, (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sure you've never been, I've never, I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've had your credentials challenged in different ways. I don't think that's something you were expecting to hear. Um, (laughs) I'll tell you a funny anecdote about Jared Kushner one day. Um, uh, so he, yeah, like they, you know, saw themselves as a tech company, but like, then you actually look at WeWork's numbers and this is sort of fundamental to what commercial real estate is. Like there's only so much money you can get out of an office on, on the one hand, in terms of how much are you going to rent it for? And much more to the point, you have very fixed costs every time you build an office. So WeWork's business was like, I'll sign a 10 year lease with a landlord and then I'll renovate this space and then build, you know, fill it with glassy desks, um, glassy walled desks. And each of those desks costs a huge amount of money, thousands of dollars. And if you're a software business, uh, you can sort of get, you build the software, you build the app, and then people download it and pay you. And every time a new person downloads it, it doesn't cost you money. Anytime somebody adds a desk uh, for WeWork, it costs them money. And, you know, you take that with how, like, it's sort of cap. People aren't going to spend a million dollars a month on a desk, even if you give them fruit water. Uh, Then, you know, there's really only so much profit you can get out of real estate. And there's only so fast can grow organically. Uh, And so there's not also that much reason to, like, sort of grab the market and, and, you know, in, in the same way that you hear about that with Amazon or Uber. Yeah, Maureen, what about the tech? What about the the whole, like, what is tech and how that plays into the public markets, capital markets side of things? Sure. So from the public markets, capital markets, I mean, everyone, as you said, wants to make themselves a tech company. I mean, because there's such a huge difference in terms of what your valuation will be. And if you, I mean, just take it, say you make a billion dollars in revenue every year. If you're a real estate company, it could be maybe people are willing to value at $2 billion because you can only get so big, you can only make so much profit ever. If you're a tech company, I mean, maybe you could be valued at uh, $20 million. It's it's that that big of a difference and it changes how much money you can raise, um, your stock price, everything else. So there is a push with every company imaginable right now to try to build themselves as tech. Adam was kind of, was somewhat early to the party, Adam Newman with WeWork, and um, he pushed it very very far and successfully as far as valuation. It just, the um, each step of the way, it never, the metrics never changed the revenue versus the profits. I mean, it never looked like a tech company if you looked at the numbers, but it was always going to get there. And he always raised money with that in mind. But if you look back, as we said earlier, the sophisticated investors if they were to look back at every projection and where it landed and it, it never got there, and, but no one seemed to care. And, and one of the things we found in, in the reporting process was just like all of these pitch decks they used where they showed these investors, like, uh, here's how we're going to raise money. And it's just like this, this real estate company's pitch deck is filled with like, you know, we work uh, on a, on a MacBook, and we work on an, an, 
I, you know, uh, a phone um, and, and just showing how the app works as though like you really need a MacBook to use a WeWork. Like you literally couldn't even book a WeWork online. You had to call someone. Um, and they've recently changed that. And then what you fast forward to when they were going to do the IPO and the bankers really bought into exactly what Maureen's saying. And so they gave Adam and we worked these pitch decks saying like, here's how we think you're going to be portrayed. And the comparable companies are like Salesforce, Zoom, uh, Netflix, Amazon, um, which, you know, again, this is a company that subleases office space. There was not the subleasing office space comparable on there. So let's talk about the system as it is. Has have people learned about WeWork? Uh, Maureen, I'll, I guess I've learned about WeWork at this point. <laughs> well, I learned from WeWork. Uh, I hear so you cover capital markets. First of all, you can ask us. Uh, you can explain to us what a SPAC is. I hear a lot about SPACs. Um, I know that WeWork went public in a SPAC, so it is a WeWork uh, specific thing. Has private capital? change its behavior? Does the tech bias still exist? Are companies still desperate to build themselves as tech in order to boost their valuations? Is there maybe too much negativity whenever it comes to this? Because we have a booming stock market, and I also see people going public in a private manner more than ever before. So what the hell is happening right now? So if you ask if it um, had an effect uh, for a minute, it did. I mean, WeWork's IPO got pulled, the valuation crumbled, Adam was out. And there was this brief wake up where suddenly Masayoshi Son, the CEO of SoftBank, one of WeWork's biggest investors was suddenly telling his um, portfolio, the companies he was investing in, you have to be profitable, which was something he never said before. Public market investors seemed to care. Um, but that switched dramatically again sometime in 2020. And I mean, I'll, I'll just tell you, we our book sort of ends around when Adam leaves WeWork, and then we had a, we have an epilogue, just sort of you know digesting this. And I would say COVID we, we happened, were, right? Is that the epilogue? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> COVID happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is, that, is that is that the epilogue? <laughs> that, that, that might be one part of it. If there's not too many spoilers, but uh, <laughs> it also is like, what is the market? What's the response been? And I think we rewrote that like four times because the pendulum had really swung. That there, it did seem to have an effect on the market at large and investors did seem to be have woken up and been worried about, you know, another WeWork repeating itself, both in the pri private markets and public markets. And suddenly COVID happened and we had this whole new, the Fed started, you know, tried to help uh, stay, save the economy in COVID. And that sort of just led to more risky behavior. So, um, and do you want, do you want me to do the SPACs? Because that, that factor is part of this. I think people yeah. want to know. People don't know what they are. Yeah. I love SPAC attack. About SPACs. Yeah. <laughs> um, so SPACs are special purpose acquisition corporations. They're essentially a pool of money. People go out, usually like a well-known financier, like an ex-CEO, goes out, raises money in the public stock market that then they say, you buy into it, and they're going to go after a company. They're going to take a private company public with this billion dollars or whatever it is. And um, so it's been became this sort of trendy thing. And you can imagine why that's risky. It's like you're sort of handing people a checkbook, and you don't have no idea what they're going to buy. They can essentially kind of buy anything. And then it's a public company, and you're, you're taking a bet on that. Um, so this year, this year uh, we work got acquired by a SPAC. Um, it's, it, the deal was announced. It will go public probably in the next like two months. So um, 
you can know, you can anyone can buy into the future of WeWork. Uh, so Thank yeah, you, Marshall. Yeah, I know. I've I yeah. finally history circling back, and I have my massive opportunity here. Here's something um, that because once again, the optimist side of me is just thinking here. For the two of you, I'll start with you, Elliot. Can we imagine an alternate scenario where Adam had just decided not to try to IPO when he tried to IPO? Because there was obviously the weird um, quick period where people thought that deals wouldn't go through during COVID, but the market seemed to have recovered after June 2020. What if Adam had managed to survive not done the IPO, because that's how everything just came out in the open, right? That's how the whole house of cards mm-hmm. comes down. What if he hadn't been hubristic? What if he had found a way to articulate his story? Isn't it very plausible we would still be just going down this road? Because if you give Adam a situation where his competitors, aka commercial real estate, are wrecked, I can imagine him telling a story that's two times the value you had before. Because the whole line of COVID is COVID, oh, you know, we yeah. all know cliches here. It's the business we're in. COVID has advanced the world. 10 years, I could easily see Adam in an Israeli accent. I'm not going to affect here saying, you know, like we were always going to beat commercial real estate, but now they're done. It's 2030. We're not worth a hundred billion dollars. So he all just, cause I think what I'm trying to get at here is what's so fascinating about this is so much of this is narratives. So much of this is narratives and how you're telling the story and how actors are thinking of the story. So can you just like comment on that? I know you're not going to be able to perfect articulate. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. The hypothetical history that didn't happen is easy. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I'd say it, it, it could have gone in two directions. Like, you know, one, if, if they had just not IPO'd, uh, there's an easy answer. Um, if nothing else changed, they would have completely run out of money. And uh, and they did nearly completely run out of money to the point where they, they couldn't even afford to lay off their staff. Uh, they had to raise money to lay thousands of people off. Uh, so if, if nothing had changed and uh, then, you know, they, they would have gone bankrupt. Um, but, uh, you know, had sort of timing worked a little different or had they been able to find financing and the the mystique of Adam kept along or Adam waited until this or had the SPAC boom happened a year and a half earlier. Um, yeah, you could see a situation where Adam would be selling the the public markets on on the same type of stuff that he was selling the private markets on. And, you know, the SPAC boom, particularly earlier this year, was just uh, I mean, it was sort of like a soft bank uh, spread across all sorts of kind of crazy companies. Like some companies are, are legit that are getting it and, you know, profitable and, and, and make money. But a lot of them are are like WeWork had revenue. Uh, a lot of these companies don't even have revenue. Like they're, you know, Nikola, this truck maker that intends to make hydrogen trucks and an entire national network of hydrogen truck, like hydrogen fueling stations, uh, raised, you know, like almost a billion dollars and was briefly valued more than Ford. Its founder took out a hundred million dollars. They bought a jet ski company. They bought a plane. He bought a plane. I mean, <laughs> it was very similar to WeWork, um, kind of unfast forward. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think if, if they had sort of persisted and somehow managed to survive till the SPAC boom and keep the mystique alive, then yeah, they could probably be, be capitalizing this on, on this era. Um, the, the counter to that is, and this is a nuance, but like one of the things that's changed and that's still chilly in, in tech land and startup land is companies that lose gobs and gobs of money. And yeah. like that was, WeWork had that down. That was their thing. Uh, like <laughs> for a year that went by, they lost more. Um, and and even Uber was, you know, curtailing its losses when it IPO'd. Well, quick follow-up to the two of you. What makes the money run out when a company has revenue, right? Because 
what happens is the more funding rounds that happen, the less control Adam has over the company, the more, you know, existing investors are diluted. But I don't, I, it's just hard for me to imagine a world where it's, let's say it's January, 2020, Adam's running a lot of money. It's hard to see a world where he couldn't just find more money, given that once again, WeWork has this mass, the brand has value. It's not, it's not a random thing. It's not, you know, Uber for cookies, which unfortunately did not quite build the August branding there, but I, I just help <laughs> us under, I, I'm just trying to understand, like, I, I just don't see a world where people just say, you know what, Uber, you're just what people think of when they think of when it comes to, you know, transportation, we're just, we're, I just don't see anything here. So how oh. does that work? Yeah, I think it's pretty simple. Like it, we work at the rate it was expanding. It was losing on, on pace to lose like $4 billion in 2019. And, you, you know, given that they're sort of intrinsically right now valued at about $8 billion of, of what was like under the, the Adam hype, uh, you can't just raise $4 billion pretty easily. If you're an $8 billion company, you have to sell half the company. Um, so like the scale of their losses, I mean, they, they were just, you know, spending it on, on ridiculous stuff. Like they, this is one that didn't happen, but they tried to buy, they wanted brainstormed about buying that Wu-Tang album that Martin Screlly owned. How much was that going for that? This was $2 million. Yeah. What were they, what, so, uh, like, what was, what were they going to, what were they going to, okay. This is like, what, what, so you, you're talking about like, you know, talking about like sweet green and working for Airbnb. I get those. What were they going to do? This is the question. The audience is, what were they going to do with, were they going to put it at the best rework? Like, what does that even look like? Um, making an NFT maybe. And then it would work like a hundred yeah, million. They just missed the trends there. There could have been, a, there could, there's like a, a bright shining moment where every single um, trendy Twitter thing hit at the same time. Here. They're visionaries. Oh, they, they they invested in two coffee creamer companies that, yeah. that including, you know, one that was Adam's friend, Laird Hamilton. Um, yeah. I mean, they, they found lots of ways to spend money in addition to just being like really bad at, at running a co-working company. Like mm. they, they were not getting economies of scale in the way that you should at that size. They were spending air freighting couches at the last minute. Yeah. Yeah. Those kind of things, I think, I mean, just in one piece of the business, I mean, it sort of floored us, I think, as you talk to more people around just like the basic business of co-working and what they they should have known how to do, like essentially like outfit offices and like the waste and the excesses. And, you know, they had a designer who just like didn't, they'd order tons of couches and then he didn't like the like orange color. So he's like, send them away. And then... <laughs> You were if you work there, you could get this really like beautiful designer couch for like some cheap amount um, because they didn't want them. So it, if you like orange, that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <that's> <laughs> Well, I you mean, know, it's, it's funny. Yeah, sorry, please, also, sorry. you guys are making me sad. I'm a huge fan of Laird Hamilton. So I didn't know that he was involved in we work, which actually makes me sad. But, uh, shout out to Laird and his wife, Gabby. I think they're still very interesting. Um, I guess my big question to both of you on this is it gets to something which I've just, I still don't really understand, which is, and I know this may sound weird. I get Theranos and I know that there was dumb money behind it, but I get it. I'm like blood test. There's a lot of, that's a huge market. I mean, if they're faking the results and they lie to me, like, how am I supposed to know? The only way I would not know is, you know, and, and I guess that's really how they get fooled. They didn't do their due diligence, but I get it. Like at the end of the day, it's a good idea. Um, Marshall, to Marshall's point, I do get WeWork to a certain extent, but 
I remember thinking in like 2019 or something, I was like, this is just a commercial real estate company with the most ridiculous valuation that I've ever seen. I think uh, Galloway actually wrote, I didn't even really know who he was, but I read his blog post um, looking there. And I was like, this is bullshit. I was like, this company is just like, and it seemed so obvious. And now that the documentaries have come out, I mean, if you've been to Israel, you've met Adam Newman's. Like I watch (laughs) his, um, I watch his speeches and I'm like, this like <laughs> smart people gave money to this of him being like we are going to change the world and the what was it elevate the world's consciousness yep. and then he put his wife on the board i'm like if you have if you're a billionaire i i look i've met some uh they're not stupid people uh to your point these were some sophisticated investors why like at, at and i'm i'm talking about at the highest rounds why like what did what do they see that I don't, is this just my cynical because oh. I'm from media, right? Like, is this because like I cover media and I have to deal with these like idiot politicians all the time where we <laughs> everybody knows that they're lying and it's just like kabuki theater, but this is real money. Like I have to assume these people know something that I don't know whenever they're giving this person money. So this is to both of you, both Maureen, you can start, um, but I want to hear what you have to say too, Elliot. Um, well, I guess I'll start. I mean, just one takeaway we've talked about many times while reporting the book was like, things that seem like they made no sense at the time. And there must have been like, more, I mean, there's a lot more we found out, but sometimes things were as like ridiculous as they seemed. I mean, with Masayoshi Son, when he met Adam, other people, yeah, they they met for 12 minutes. I mean, he did a 12 minute tour of WeWork, then got in a car up to on his way to meet Trump, right, as, uh, after post inauguration. And decided he should give him $4.4 billion um, after his, like they had passed on it before and um, they were going to take over the world. And um, it was, yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, just one thing I will say is, plus, as we talked about earlier, I mean, the private capital, it was so abundant. Everyone wanted to get in on the next big thing. But part of it was him always conquering new markets and saying, you know, again, like, don't look here, look here. Yes, we got commercial real estate, but next we're going to own, you know, we're going to own real estate. We're going to do, we live where everyone's going to live in a, we work apartment building, which I actually think we work, we live still sounds cool. And I would want to live a there. Good idea. I would know as a, as a, as a 20 something moving to a new city like New York, I think we live is a really smart idea. That yeah. there's not something insane there for three thousand a month to live in a uh, box. I don't know. All right, go go ahead, Elliot. So yeah, we'll put a pin in the the we live thing, but the basic answer there is economics. Um, yeah. But, but but yeah, I, I mean, I think that I don't, I don't know what, why do these people do this? It's it's really that bubbles warp minds, and and when everyone's participating in a bubble, you sort of believe, and it's this kind of crazy thing where like the more a stock goes up, the more Bitcoin goes up, the more people suddenly believe it's going to go up more, uh, right? Like if it's at 1,000, nobody really believes in it. If it's, that, if it's you know, skyrockets to 30,000, then everyone's like, well, this is going to a million. Um, so that doesn't rationally make any sense uh, in the same way that uh, we, we, we cite this psychology study from like the 50s by Salman Ash. And I'll, I'll try to do this really quick. But like, if you took one person and you show them four different lines and one of the lines is smaller than the other and you ask them which one is smaller, they're like, that one. Uh, when you put them in a room of six other people and the five other five or those six other people are all paid to say uh, they all look the same. Um, the the subject, the, the first person in the study actually often comes to the conclusion, oh, yeah, all these lines are the same um, mm-hmm. because you just follow the crowd. And so if other smart people are, are in WeWork, if 
Benchmark, which is one of the best VCs in the Valley, it bought in because they really liked Adam. Then, you know, the later investors are like, well, Benchmark's there. They must really like the business. It's like, well, actually, they like the guy. Uh, and then, you know, someone else is like, well, JP Morgan's in there. They must end Benchmark. Like, how could they be wrong? And then it becomes Harvard and it becomes Jack Ma and it becomes Steve Cohen. And so, like, you got these really good investors uh, inside this really bad company. Mm-hmm. So I have these, I have these two last big-ish questions here. So question number one is, I'm interested, Elliot, in your usage of the term bubble. Because what's obviously on the mind of our more tech and finance-focused people is probably something along the lines of, look, WeWork is a unique story in terms of how we're, and there's a reason why there's been a million podcasts, why Anne Hathaway is going to star as um, Rebecca. There's, there's this whole big thing here. But in every single era, there's just like a big story. Um, some business is doing something, 50s, 60s, 40s, whatever. Um, does how insane we were got represent a bubble? Um, because a bubble makes me think of the dot-com bubble in 2000, where the entire industry goes kaput. But if 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 you know if if WeWork isn't even a tech company, it's just a real estate company, like what does WeWork actually even say? about startups? What does it actually really even say about the rest of the American economy? It seems a very weirdly isolated cases, because as we were joking earlier, there's just a bunch of these things that perfectly intersected. They gave us all plenty of material for podcasts and books and everything. But what does this really say about the bigger picture is what I'm getting at? Yeah, I think it, it was like, particularly in the mid 2010s, it, 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 extremely representative of a broad Silicon Valley private market bubble. Um, and it's not one that popped with with extraordinary, uh, you know, catastrophe, it, it, certainly not yet. But uh, among, um, I'm, you know, there were all sorts of these companies that, that uh, mentioned earlier, like, Uber and Lyft were able to raise billions of dollars for the same reason that WeWork was, because people thought that they were going to be much bigger than they actually were and sort of didn't think hard about like, well, they seem to be losing money on every single ride. And then it's still a competitive market, even though when we initially invested in these car companies, we were imagining one of them would be the monopoly. Uh, and so like, why don't we compare it to something that doesn't make money like an airline, but instead they look at it like a disruptive tech company. So like that sort of like, this can always be bigger than it looks right now. Mindset led to just like billions of dollars going into what were not terribly good investments. And, you know, it also kind of created grilled cheese companies that raised money from tech, uh, to expand Mm -hmm. that didn't matter. So, I mean that in, in the bubble sense, I think it was, that's the type of thing that happened. And that's why Casper raised, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to have a mattress for a mattress company that said it was a tech company. Um, and you know, that type of thing has, has cooled a little bit, but it's moved into sort of other areas and, and SPACs are kind of principally one of them. So here's something I'm wondering then, which is when we're describing this area, this era, we work, and this comes out in the reporting all have done, we work is very much a company that comes out of the post-financial crisis space, right? Like Adam actually tells the story in that sense. You know, you've had American capitalism and world capitalism getting this big, this big hits. People are looking for a different experience. They're looking for this very opposite East Coast, opposite um, Wall Street bit here. How much, I'm not asking for a prediction here because I'm just looking more for a, uh, I'm curious if, from y'all's reporting, what are trends? How do you see the knock on wood once again, post-COVID space affecting narrative shifts, right? So if so many of these, if so many of these companies and these founders and these firms are telling their story in the 2010s based on what happened in 2008, 
are there any trends or anything you're seeing in 2020 through 2021 that are impacting how we think people are going to tell these stories going into the 2020s? I mean, it's, it's playing out now. I mean, it feels like it's already playing out in a huge way. And I don't, I mean, this is like the immediate one, but I mean, Airbnb, look at their IPO. It was like, uh, you know, they had to raise money at, in March or April of uh, 2020 at the beginning of COVID, like the company was going to be done and uh, they had to raise money at like a discount. It was uh, debt financing at really steep terms. But then, I mean, their IPO has gone crazy and they're the post COVID. I mean, we we're definitely seeing a post COVID comeback. I mean, we're all going to want to go to Airbnbs and fly and Mm -hmm. go back out to restaurants. So, I mean, there's a clear, um, bet that investors are, I mean, racing into. And uh, I mean, real estate alone, having our struggles to get an apartment right now or um, living it (laughs) with prices going up um, and rentals and purchases. So, um, yeah, Elliot, what do you what do you think? Yeah, yeah. I haven't been paying super close attention to all this sort of startups bubbling out, but there's just a huge amount that in the buzz of the world on, you know, the post, like the future of work. Uh, what's, what's, you know, coordination, uh, like, I mean, how many startups can you have that sort of, uh, integrate with zoom, you know, video conferencing? I don't know, but uh, a depressing amount actually. Right. <laughs> as someone who's been stuck in zoom hell for you, you'd be, you'd be shocked at how many hellish workplace productivity connection tools I've been forced oh. to use. <laughs> Um, totally. Yeah. But yeah, you know, the, these big events do like are, are sort of just symbolic mileposts, but also do sort of like set set the scene for other things. They set the scene for how people raise money and spend the money, too. So mm-hmm. um, I imagine we'll be living in a sort of similar looking back in a similar way and finding the bubbly things that came out of the post COVID era. Great. Well, guys, I think we learned a lot more. I actually learned a lot more here uh, about WeWork than I think we have in previous work. So this has been really helpful. So thank you. Where can people go and find out the book and both of your work? We just made a website and we aren't even paid to say we made it with Squarespace on a podcast, but we did. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's cultofwe.com and all, yeah, cultofwe.com. Uh, or you can just go to Amazon. You can go to Penguin Random House and just look up Cult of We. There, there's no other awesome. books named Cult of We. There we go. We'll have the link down there in the show notes on our bookshop as well. Um, we but really, really appreciate it, Maureen and Elliot. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Thanks. a lot, guys. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Reminder, Substack, subscription, bookshop, book purchases, and most importantly, realignment conference signups. Not everyone who applies to be able to make it, but we'll definitely put stuff together in the future because we're getting so many awesome people who are reaching out. And of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.